A good haircut can be a game changer. I mean, everybody wants to look their best for those social media pics, right? So get yourself to Sport Clips at Sport Clips Haircuts. They hair do like no one else hair does. See what they did there? Not only is it the home of champion haircuts, but they've also made relaxing and unwinding the name of the game. Level up your haircut with the MVP haircut experience. It's a spa day for your follicles. Check this out. You get a seven pressure point massaging shampoo along with a perfectly steamed hot towel all while sports plays on the TV. Does it get any better than that? No. You can want it all and have it all at Sport Clips. It's a game changer. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Talk is Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pod of thunder and rock and roll, rock and roll twilight zone. We're going to get to that, but hang on to your hats and glasses. This is the wildest ride in the wilderness, the Duff McKagan joke of the week. Here you go. Hi, Chris Jericho. It's Duff McKagan calling. Uh, how are you doing, Chris Jericho? I'm, uh, one of the day. Tofu. I'll use it, Chris. In a sentence. Hey, I want to suck on your tofu. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> tofu. All right. If you think you got a better sentence for Duff's word than this, tofu, tweet it to me at Talk is Jericho. And some of you did send some alternate sentences for last week's Duff McKagan uh, word of the day slash joke of the week, which was Wakandia. Uh, Wakanda, and I got to share this one. Uh, at M. Pardoski tweeted, Fozzy Wakanda stage, rock like it's the last day of the world. Fozzy walk off the stage. So, good one. If you got one for Tofu, tweet it to me at Talk is Jericho, and we'll read it right here on uh, on the show. And thanks to always to Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Duff McKagan for taking the time to entertain us with his bad jokes and equally bad word of the day every single Friday. And speaking of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, today's guest is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but he knows a lot about some of the mysteries and conspiracies surrounding some of Rock's biggest legends and Hall of Famers. Richard Sire at home of the the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone, newest jo- uh, show right here on the Jericho Network. Rich Sirrett is here to share some of those fascinating stories with us, kicking it off with the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone is all about right here on the Jericho Network. We're going to touch on the death of Jimi Hendrix. Was it murder? Suicide? Accidental is reported? We're not sure. Rich will dig deep into this great mystery on his own podcast, available now. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Check it out. He's going to give us a special preview today on Talk is Jericho. He's also going to run down the 27 Club, the great musicians who died at the age of 27, like Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Brian Jones of the Stones, Kurt Cobain. Crazy how long this list is. Wait to hear it all in its entirety. He's got some great info on all the weird coincidences and the alleged curse surrounding the Buddy Holly plane crash that killed Buddy Holly, the big bopper, and Richie Valens some 50 years ago. Stories are fascinating. If you really want to get more details about some of the stuff we touch on today, you got to check out Rich's podcast, Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. Like I said, brand new on the Jericho Network. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts. 
Google Play, tune in, or just ask Alexa to play it for you on your smart speaker. So Richard Searrett and the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone coming up. But first, coming up, Fozzie on the Judas Rising Tour in San Diego tonight with Iced Earth, uh, March 9th at the House of Blues. Uh, Through Fire, Santa Cruz are joining us that night. And for the rest of the tour, uh, just Iced Earth at San Diego tonight. And then tomorrow, Los Angeles at the Whiskey. March 11th, Sunday at the Counts of Amped in Las Vegas. March 13th, San Francisco at Slim's. March 15th, Portland, Oregon. And March 16th, Seattle, Washington. Then we're going to Milwaukee, Chicago, Grand Rapids, Detroit, Dayton, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Clifton Park, New York, Philly, Portland, Hampton Beach. And don't forget Hampton Beach at Wally's. We're going to do an early show, 5 p.m. And then we're going to watch WrestleMania together. That's right. Together we're going to watch it at Wally's after the Fozzy Rock Show. April 8th. Get your tickets now at FozzyRock.com and come join us for the VIP meet and greet. Fozzy's got the best VIP experience in rock. We do a live concert for you. Take requests even. Take pictures with you. Sign autographs. We meet you. We greet you. We retreat you. Everything you want to do, all, all available at FozzyRock.com. All right. Coming to you now. Live. Rock and roll. Twilight Zone with Richard Searrett right here on Talk is Jericho. Here we go. So um, it's interesting. So uh, one of my most critically acclaimed shows was a few months ago. Um, it was the Paul is Dead and other rock and roll conspiracies or legends with our Gary Patterson. I'm here with, with, with Rich uh, Serrett. And you were Gary's partner. That's right. Because I think if you guys remember, if you didn't listen to the show, two weeks after I interviewed Gary, he passed away very suddenly. Um, so his interview with me on Talk is Jericho was his last interview as far as I know. I think as far as maybe anybody knows. It was. And, you know, ultimately, Gary had a great sense of humor because you were talking about the whole Paul is dead rumor, which is how Gary really made his mark with mm -hmm. The Walrus Was Paul. He wrote a book about it, right. And Gary and I talked endlessly about Sgt. Pepper and all the clues. Right. Well, when does Gary decide to check out? But <laughs> May 26th, the anniversary of the release, 50 years to the day. No kidding. Yes. Wow. I did not realize that. So he had the last laugh. You know, we, we, it was funny because some people were pointing out, I mean, nothing funny, but I think the, the sense of humor that Gary had, like you said, it was funny in that a, a couple people on Twitter were like, are you sure he's really dead? Exactly. Did, did he maybe fake his own death just to build up the podcast? You know, and it was very timely in that respect. Yes. Well, a couple of upsides. One, he didn't join the 27 Club. Right. Yeah. Uh, he, he, um, we wish he stayed longer, but uh, mm -hmm. he was 67. And number two, he's finally going to get to meet all of these right. icons. Right. That, he, that he talked about endlessly. I think he will be a little upset, though, that uh, the only instrument they have up there is a harp <laughs> because he loved his guitar. There's no rock and roll harp players. <laughs> Not think. that I know but, of. But that's what I mean. Like, it was, I told you a little bit earlier, like, I've been looking for someone like Gary for a while to do a show, more specifically on, on, on the Paul McCartney conspiracy of being dead and all that sort of stuff. But then he... he you know, I read his books, but he told me a couple other very cool stories, and we were saying, oh, we got to do a part two. He's like, oh, I got stories about this and this and this, and there's so much there, and that's why I wanted to talk to you today because you're kind of carrying on his legacy of being maybe now the the expert in, in, in rock and roll legends and conspiracies and mythos and that sort of thing. Well, huge shoes to fill. I'm not a, I was never a musician, but I'm just a huge fan of huge rock and, of roll, rock fan. and roll fan. Gotcha, yeah. So, yeah, Gary, um, as you know, filled volumes with these sorts of things. And, and rock and roll, I mean, from its beginning was just just ripe for these types of legends. You know, uh, live hard, die young, leave a good corpse. 
Uh, and in some cases, you know, these corpses are still wandering around <laughs> haunting right. different locations. And just the very, the birth of rock and roll, you know, coming from Appalachia and, and the Mississippi Delta, both those regions just steeped in folklore and, and really a, a, um, a deep belief in the paranormal. Mm. So the marriage, the blending of the two, I well, guess was cons- always meant to be. The whole concept of, of kind of one of the pioneers of rock and roll, Robert Johnson, you know, the whole Crossroads legend. If you don't even know it, you've heard it. Robert Johnson went down to the Crossroads, sold his soul to the devil, that he'd become a big musician, starred in, in, in rhythm and blues at the time, and then it would die at 27. Right, Robert right. Johnson, yeah, the, some consider him the grandfather of rock and roll. Sure, right. And uh, couldn't play a lick. Uh, he used to chase after uh, Sun House and, and ask him to teach him a few things, and Sun didn't want anything to do with him. All of a sudden, Robert Johnson disappears for several months, I guess, uh, up to a year, depending on which version of the story. He comes back, and my gosh, he's just turning heads. He's playing in all the juke joints and just blowing people away. Mm-hmm. And he would play with his back to the audience, which kind of added to the mystery because he didn't want to give away these these the licks tricks. that supposedly had been taught to him uh, by the devil, and he <laughs> he told people that he was he was taking lessons and learning to play in in um, in cemeteries, and uh, yeah, perhaps ultimately made the deal with the old scratch, as they call him, uh, somewhere around Cleveland or Ruleville, mm-hmm. uh, Mississippi, yeah, to become a star. But so what I wanted to say is is you. We're going to do a show about this sort of things with Gary. Is that kind of because you emailed me after Gary passed away and said, you know, I have this idea of what I was going to right. do with him and I want to continue on. Gary and I had been um, fast friends for almost 20 years, mostly over the radio, over the phone. And then we got occasion to meet a few times, sat down and decided, why don't the two of us get together and put a program together that talks about what he's written about for years, what I've talked about for years on the radio a blending, we called it Spirit of Rock Radio, Rock and Roll Meets the Twilight Zone. And we had been working on this for two years and we're getting very close to finally launching on terrestrial radio. And just days before we were to meet with a radio station down in Knoxville, I learned you had been on uh, on Coast to Coast AM with uh, our, our colleague. Um, Dave was hosting, right? Dave was yeah. hosting. You And uh, I got a, a Facebook message from him Saturday morning. And he said, just wanted you to know Gary passed away. And my first instinct was that's absolute nonsense. I just talked to him last night. So immediately I called Gary. I said, what the hell is going on? And um, he didn't answer. He did not. (laughs) He did not. He, but I, I checked my phone records on my iPhone and it said that I had no outgoing or incoming calls on Friday, the day that night. I I was so sure, Chris, that I had talked to him because uh, we talked several times a week he had called me on the Thursday to say, the meeting is on for Monday, which happened to be Memorial Day. And I said, and we were both very excited. And then, he's, then he called me, I was certain again, Friday to tell me, no, Monday's Memorial Day, there's no meeting. And then he said a few things that were kind of odd. First of all, and this isn't about, you know, pumping myself up, but he said, you know, Richard, you and I are a really big deal. I think he was trying to pump us both up. And then he said, you're a super cool dad. I thought, where is this coming from? Very strange. So my, my last words to him was, I wished him a happy Memorial Day weekend. And I said, are you having a barbecue? And Gary said very emphatically, which was very strange in retrospect, there will be no barbecue. 
So, I, okay, fine. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna press that issue. I don't know what's going on there. So then I was sure again that was Friday. Then I get the uh, the Facebook message from Dave Schrader at Coast, and uh, I check my messages. Nothing on Friday. I went upstairs and I talked to my wife. I said Gary just died, and without me prompting her, she, she said you talked to him last night, and I said I was so certain, but. There's no ingoing, outgoing calls. Wow. She said, well, you were talking to somebody because you walked through the kitchen with the phone to your ear. And you see, she said, you had a kind of a distant look on your face. And I didn't follow up to ask you who you were talking to. Hmm. And she said, I assumed it was Gary. So that was probably around 7 or 8 o'clock. I went down to the funeral in uh, near Knoxville. I find out Gary had passed around 6 o'clock very suddenly on that Friday. So I went up to his brother to express my condolences, and I said, you know, one of the last things Gary said to me was, when I asked him about, are you going to have a barbecue on Memorial Day? And, he, and I said, he said, there will be no barbecue. And he said, that's funny, because that Friday, Gary went out and spent about $500 on a brand new barbecue. Hmm. So am I misremembering this, Chris? Is my wife misremembering it? I don't know. I mean, I'm not inclined to necessarily believe Mm -hmm. And telephone calls from the dead. <laughs> and I, if he was going to call anybody, it would probably be a close family member. Why me? I don't know. But there you have it. Hmm. Very, very strange, right? But well, also, too, like you said, it, it, I've always found from doing a lot of paranormal shows here uh, on Talk is Jericho, that when you have somebody who has kind of that... Um, uh, I'm going to say like a conduit. There's a vibe there. Things like this happen. Like you said, passing away on... Uh, May 26th, the 50th right. anniversary of Sergeant Pepper, when, you know, his last recorded interview is about Sergeant Pepper and the Beatles, etc. Right. You know, um, who's to say? Who's to say? I mean, it does. I'm not going to tell you that you're crazy because it would make perfect sense if it happened. You know what I mean? It would make almost too much sense. <laughs> and I've stopped. <laughs> I've stopped sort of, you know, dismissing these things out of hand because there's just it when you become immersed in this whole arena. Uh, I don't know what you just start maybe connecting the dots. Maybe maybe there's a psychological term for when you see things that aren't necessarily there. You're, you're seeing patterns and so forth. Maybe I'm a little guilty of that. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I have to say, since I've been on this beat uh, more or less for the last 20 years, you know, the odd thing like that happens Can once I mean? in a while. And if you pay attention... And um, you know, I you think that's a great point. If you pay attention, yeah. If your if your mind is open to it, like this is a completely different thing, but I think you understand. Like, I started doing yoga about five years ago, and it really cured all that ailed me. And my wife did it, and she didn't really believe in it. It didn't do anything for her. I believed it would work. I wanted it to work. I needed it to work, and it worked. I was paying attention to to the signs, right? And I think it's the same with paranormal and this sort of thing. If you're watching for the signs, you'll see a lot of stuff. That most people don't because it's hiding in plain sight right right in front of you. Sure. And I don't know a lot about yoga. My wife is also, mm -hmm. she's into hot yoga and it's all about concentrating on the breath. And you're concentrating, you're focused on the, the breath sure. coming in and the breath going out. And so you're really experiencing sort of the ever-present now. You're mm -hmm. really in the moment. Mm -hmm. So as a performer, I can see that absolutely essential for sure. someone like yourself. Sure. But. I guess yeah. If you're if you're experiencing that ever present now, then sort of the distinction between the past and the future, that sort of stuff kind of disappears. And mm -hmm. we are maybe we enter this, you know, this time loop. There is no future. There is no past. There is only the now. And so, 
you know, communicating with someone who we think is beyond, uh, you know, beyond, beyond the, the veil, grave, yeah. that that sort of stuff, maybe it's, it's, it's far more possible mm -hmm. if you're in the ever present now. So your idea now is to continue the spirit of radio with, with, with on your own, obviously. I came back from the funeral sort of questioning whether it should just die along with Gary. And I thought, no, that's not what Gary would want. And I really want this too. And I, I'm just, I, I became convinced that it, that it's what he wanted. It's what I want. So yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it a twirl and see if we can uh, so let's make this happen. Let's talk about some stuff that you'll talk about in Spirit of the Radio. Because like I said last time with Gary, it was just uh, riveting to me all the stories that we spoke about, Paul and beyond. So, what, what, what tell me some of the things that you want to kind of explore? Well, the, the 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 first episode is about Jimi Hendrix, and not or I don't just focus on you know the macabre elements. We, the the show is also celebrating the music and the life of these individuals, and then interwoven in there are these elements of uh, what I call the woo woo. Mm -hmm. So with Jimi Hendrix, obviously, you know, we talk about how he was just, you know, light years ahead of his time and playing as Juma. To this day. Yes. Juma Sultan, I interviewed Juma Sultan, who played uh, percussion, the congas for him at Woodstock mm. in his new band um, after um, Noel Redding and, and Mitch Mitchell had left. That's right, yeah. That's right. This one was um, Gypsy Suns and mm -hmm. Gypsy Sun and Rainbows at Woodstock. And Juma Sultan played congas there and also on the Dick Cavett show with him. And he, he talked about Hendrix was playing the music of the spheres, just, you know, just so out there hearing notes uh, that, that nobody even dreamed of, mm -hmm. you know, in colors and, and things like this. But so we celebrate the music, but we also talk about obviously his passing in September of 1970. And uh, just let me say this, I had his brother, his stepbrother Leon was on this show oh, and wow. said there was, he doesn't believe the, the reports of how Jimmy died. He said there was some very uh, strange things afoot. Yeah, it, it seems as, as time goes on, and, and uh, I think as people get closer to sort of meeting their maker, they feel the burden to relieve them or unburden oh, themselves. Yeah, yeah. And so we have, um, for example, people that, were, that performed the autopsy now apparently speaking out, uh, talking about uh, the presence of, of red wine in Jimmy's, um, in his stomach. Mm. Uh, but not a lot in his blood, bloodstream. They okay. found like bottles of wine. It was in his hair when they picked him up from from the uh, the. The official cause death. of death was drug overdose. Yeah, or? barbiturates. Okay, gotcha. Um, and asphyxiation on on his own vomit. Oh wow, I didn't know that. As a result of the barbiturates. Okay. Uh, so they found all this red wine in his hair, but mainly in his stomach and then in his esophagus. Hmm. Uh, so the the question is, how does he have all this red wine in his stomach? Uh, sorry, in his lungs, rather. Mm -hmm. Apologies. In his lungs, but not in his bloodstream. Wow. Okay. Well, we also know from Jimi Hendrix's uh, associates and friends, he didn't even drink red wine. So enter his... Have a um, little glass of vodka here as we talk. It's very rock and roll. <laughs> All right. So if you hear the pouring, that's it. It's not red wine. So go he, ahead. So... So uh, Jimmy's final hours... He didn't even hours, drink red wine, you said. That's the, those are the, okay. the reports. He did not drink red wine. So he's staying at the Samarkan Hotel in um, in uh, London, in the Notting Hill district with his girlfriend, uh, Monica Daneman. And when he's found, he's alone in the apartment, in the hotel. Ambulance picks him up, they take him back to the hospital, try to revive him, St. Martin Hospital, no luck. He dies at around 12.45 p.m. And again, all this red wine. Now, enter his uh, road manager, the late James Tappy Wright who I spoke to and told me that 
his road manager, Tappy Wright, t- tells me that his manager, Mike Jeffrey, is a former MI6 agent. He served in the Suez Crisis in 1956. MI6 is the English Secret Service? That's or? right. Okay. Yeah, he's, this guy's essentially an assassin. Mm. He's a mm. hired killer. He mm. kill you with his bare hands. Okay. So Jeffrey was incredibly controlling over Jimi Hendrix, and Hendrix's life insurance policy had been taken. This is not uncommon. A manager will take out a life insurance policy on his star. The recording company would as well. But his his contract with Jeffrey was also about to expire. And Mike Jeffrey had borrowed heavily from the mob, according to James Tappy Wright, in order to build, to buy and build Electric Land Studios in New York. So, Jimmy's studio. That's right. Yeah. Now, Jimi Hendrix, if he walks away after his contract with him expires, Mike Jeffrey's left holding the bag. So, the question is then, what happened in those hours when Monica Daneman left the apartment, leaving Jimi Hendrix alone on the bed, fully clothed, dead? Before, you know, what happened in, those, in that missing time? Did someone come in? Did they pour red wine down Jimi Hendrix's throat, Did, essentially drowning him? He drowned in red wine. Really? That's, that seems to be the opinion of not only people like Juma Sultan and, and James Tappy Wright, but also uh, you know, other researchers, people that have talked to medical examiners and so forth. So how do you drown on red wine? Well, if you hold someone's head just the right way and hold their, tilt their head back and, and pour the wine down their throat, hmm. it's a little bit like waterboarding. I was going to say that. It's, it's like a waterboarding, like yeah. waterboarding. Now, yeah. who would have that kind of knowledge? Someone like his manager. Wow. <laughs> now, Mike Jeffrey is no longer with us. He, he, uh, he died mysteriously in a plane crash himself in 1973. The only thing they found was his Rolex. So mm. maybe he's out there. <laughs> right, right, right. We don't know. But it's a, it's a mystery. I don't know that we'll ever fully know the answer, but people are starting to talk. Mm-hmm. So, so you're thinking that maybe he would have drugged Jimmy and then drowned him with the wine, or is Jimmy still alive, struggling, or what do you? What's the theory? The the, the theory is um, the Monica Daneman again. She's no longer with us, mm-hmm. uh, not here to defend herself. But the theory is, and again, this comes from James Tappy Wright, that she probably slipped him something, just so that he could be easily sort of, you know, that he could be subdued. She slips out. She says she's going for a pack of smokes. Leaves the apartment wide open. In comes the uh, the wet team. I guess is the term they would use. Mm. And now, what does she do when she comes back to the hotel? Does she call the police? Does she call? No, she calls Eric Burden, who's in London, who's uh, dating her girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Eric Eric Burden comes over. Singer of the animals. Singer of the yeah. animals, and apparently they they clean up and hide some things. I'm not sure. Then Eric Burden goes on national television and says he believes it was a suicide. Well, now Jimmy's record label, are coming to, they're threatening to sue Eric Burden because if it was a suicide, then the life insurance policy is null and void. Right. Mike Jeffrey was incensed wow. that Eric Burden would come out and say that as well. So then he recanted and changed his tune very quickly. Unbelievable, the timing of all this. So, so just let me kind of get this all straight for the layman's terms. So Jimmy has the contract with the manager. The manager is tied up with, hundreds of thousands of dollars or a big amount of money in Jimmy's studio. Right. And Jimmy's contract is coming up. It so was money he borrowed from the mob. He borrowed from the mob. So w- was the kind of consensus that Jimmy was going to leave his management contract and go find another manager, or we don't know? Not 100% certain, but but Jimmy was, he talked to, to some of the women in his life, people like Kathy Etchingham and others. He was not happy. Jeffrey was, 
he had this routine where he would put Jimmy in a particular situation. 1969, Hendricks comes into Toronto. He's busted for possession of heroin. Jimmy swore up and down that he had kicked it. He was he didn't even have the upper, the um, the paraphernalia with him. Didn't yeah. have the tracks on his arms. Anything. So the theory again. This is James Tappy Wright in the interview says that this is Mike's mo. Mike Jeffrey. He would he would plant stuff like that so that he could come riding in like the cavalry and rescue Jimmy and say to Jimmy, see, without me, you're nowhere. Hmm. You're in big trouble. This was the way he operated, and he was good at it. It's interesting, Stephen, just you mentioned, it's so funny how how tied in Toronto is to rock and roll history, even with Keith Richards getting busted for heroin and yes. almost you know, uh, going to, 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 to jail in Toronto. Yeah, it's like a nexus. Yeah, you know, places like Memphis and London and L.A., of course, right. with the Sunset Strip in Toronto. Sure, it, it, tremendous. I think the Stones still here. always rehearse in Toronto before every tour they do in North America. They do, and mm -hmm. uh, there's the Elma Combo Club where they played and recorded uh, "Love You Live" back mm -hmm. in 1977. They love playing Toronto. Their their promoters, the Glimmer or the uh, the promoters uh, that that um, up until recently promoted their tours, are based in Toronto. Do you know that story of Keith and, and the and the heroin uh, bustant? Uh, well, I I believe they that uh, he and they ended up. I, what I remember was they ended up coming and playing a charity concert east of here in Oshawa for the blind. For the blind, that's yeah. right. So Keith has this huge heroin possession charge, where he's he's facing like fifteen years in jail. To where even reading Keith's book, he was like, okay, the Stones have to get another guitar player because I'm going away. Right. And the judge, uh, they worked it out, so all he had to do was play a concert for the blind. That's right. <laughs> Talked about nine lives. Yeah, that could have been the end of the Stones. Yeah, right I love there. 70s rock and roll. But it, it's, I was going to ask you, too, is, is it hard, uh, Rich, when, you, when you're, you know, Hendrix died in 69, 70? 70. 70, so that's almost 50 years ago. Yeah. And you're mentioning this person's passed away and that person's passed away. I mean, is it hard to still find people that are alive that, that know this, this these sort of things? It's going to get to that point. I mean, mm -hmm. It's almost like I'm in a race with The Undertaker in certain circumstances <laughs> because James Tappy Wright just passed away. Oh, wow. So After you spoke to him. After I spoke oh. to him. Uh, but there are, you know, we're, we're talking about musicians in many cases that died in their prime, 27, uh, 27 club again. Yeah. So they have, they have family members, they have friends that are still, you know, not ancient by mm -hmm. any stretch. You have record producers, you have, there's enough people out there. You know, thank God there's enough uh, of the legends still out there so in the south, still, still, still doing it Let at seventy-five for Let crying out loud. For sure, and doing it great. All right, there are some seriously talented luchadors in AEW, and not all of them speak English, which can make putting together matches a little challenging sometimes. That's why I signed up for Rosetta Stone. I'm learning Spanish, amigos, eh, amigas. See, already learning. Haha, -ha, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You don't even have to learn Spanish, though, because Rosetta Stone has 25 languages, including French, German, Korean, Arabic, and Polish, and Japanese. That's what I'm going to do next. I spent a lot of time in Japan, and I still work with a lot of Japanese wrestlers at AEW, like Takeshita. So having a better handle on the language will definitely show in the ring. Communication is key. And learning Spanish on Rosetta Stone has been so fun and easy. They've got this true accent feature that gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. Sort of like having a personal trainer for your accent. I'm using the app, but you can also do the lessons on desktop or laptop. I also like that I can download the lessons and do them offline, which is perfect for a plane. I can sit there on a flight and work on my Espanol. So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. 
For a very limited time, Talk is Jericho listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash Jericho. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash Jericho today. That's rosettastone.com slash Jericho. Do it today. Let me ask you this. You've mentioned it a couple times the 27 Club. Yes. Let's go through uh, who's in the set. I mean, I'm sure you don't know everybody, or maybe you do. There's, there's <laughs> quite a few. Well, we have to start with Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson. He's, These are all number musicians one. that died at 27 years of age. That's right. It's almost the cursed uh, year. If, you, if you're a rock and roll musician, you make it past 27. You're doing good. That's right. When you think about it, it's, you know, with all apologies to coal miners and, and I guess, uh, you know, Lumberjacks. crab fishermen, it's yeah. probably the, you know, it's one of yeah. the most dangerous occupations sure, sure. going. So, okay. So you said Robert so Johnson. So we have Robert Johnson. And then we have, it was kind of a real cluster in the late sixties into the seventies. We had Brian Jones, ex mm. of the stones in 1969. Uh, then of course you had, uh, Jim Morrison. Uh, well, we should back up J- Janis Joplin, then Jimi Hendrix then Jim Morrison, all 27. Mm. Uh, I guess if you want to come a little closer to home, we have people like Kurt Cobain. You know, the, the list is, is is probably close to 100 people. And they're not just, you know, names that mm-hmm. you would, would immediately jump out to you. There's a lot of sort of lesser knowns, you know, like the side men and the, the guys who, who uh, like the get the notoriety. And stuff yes, like exactly, that. yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's just a, one of those weird coincidences uh, that you wonder, you know, is it a coincidence or is it something more deeper than that, right? The, you know, n- the way that numbers play in, in this whole space of rock and roll and the paranormal is, is just remarkable. Uh, John Lennon and the number nine, he's well, haunted let, by the let's number Let's talk nine. about that. You, meant, you mentioned John Lennon and, t- and talking about, I'm just actually going to look up the 27 Club here and find out uh, some others. But tell us about John Lennon. You, you mentioned that there was something going on with, um, with the... Uh, with his assassination and kind of all the stuff that went on at that point in time. Well, you know, like a lot of people on December 8th, 1980, I had Monday Night Football t- turned on mm-hmm. and uh, the uh, the Miami uh, the Miami Dolphins were playing the New England Patriots and uh, I would say probably most people heard about Lennon's passing from Howard Cosell. Really? Howard Cosell, uh, they're at, there they are at the Orange Bowl and... Um, New England has just scored a touchdown. Now, this this is going to become important in a little bit. So okay. The Patriots have just scored a touchdown. They're getting ready to kick the extra point, the conversion. Cosell comes on, and he says, after all, you must remember, this is only a football game. This news report just in from New York. John Lennon, perhaps the most famous of the Beatles, shot twice in the back, taken to Roosevelt Hospital, dead on arrival. Well, I didn't hear it because I had the sound turned down, a little sidebar. I had the sound turned down. My friend and I had just discovered the Beatles maybe a couple of years earlier. We were listening to the Beatles. We had the Beatles turned up, so I didn't hear it. I went home. So you were listening to the Beatles while yes, they announced that exactly. Lennon Exactly. I wow. missed it. However, most North Americans heard it. So I take you back to the, um, the White Album. Now, the first track on the White Album is back in the USSR. Yes. First line is, flew into Miami Beach. Okay, so remember Miami playing in the Orange Bowl in those days against the New England Patriots. Mm. Now, the last cut on on that album is, it's kind of a sound collage. It's called Revolution Number no. 9. Yeah. And uh, 
very kind of experimental for its time, just sort of bits of found yeah. sound and all kind of stitched it's together. It's a soundscape, basically, it is. yeah. Now, near the end of that song, the end of that track, there's something that was recorded, I believe, in Liverpool at a, at a soccer match, at what they call over there football. And the crowd erupts in, block that kick, block that kick. It's something you might hear at a football match. Mm -hmm. Just so happens before Cosell is to announce, or as Cosell is announcing that Lennon has been shot, the New England Patriots are getting ready to kick the one-point conversion. The Orange Bowl erupts with block that kick. Wow. Block that kick. No kidding, huh? I mean, music, rock and roll is just filled with you know those those sorts of synchronicities uh, again if you're paying attention and you right like who would ever have found that out you know what i mean like who would notice that yeah it's um it's amazing to me every time i i tell that story i still get that tingle up my spine mm. something you would never know unless unless you said this you pointed it out and, and we're paying attention so here uh going back to the 27 club i looked it up and then there's a lot of names on here but like you said it goes back to 1902 but you got the keyboard player from the Grateful Dead and you got the bass player for the Stooges and the guitar player from Badfinger and not big names, but like bassist of Uriah Heep, big bands, Cecilia, she was a big star, a big singer in the 60s. Right. You know, so you're seeing a lot of these type of, of people, uh, drummer for Echo and the Bunnymen, guitar player for Reba McIntyre, keyboard player for Reba McIntyre. Cobain, yeah, so it's like a guitar player for the Manic Street Preacher. So once again, it's a lot of, of big name bands, even if it's not big name people, you know? So uh, very interesting, very interesting. Guitars for American Head Charge, I know that band. The list goes on and on and on, though, man. It just continues and continues yeah, and continues. Yeah, it's, it's quite impressive when you, see, when you see the list. I think there's close to 100 people on that Even uh, Anton Yelchin who was Chekhov in the Star Trek reboot series and guitarist for the Hammerheads, ah, well, died okay. at 27. He gets into the club then, so unfortunately. He it the, yeah, it's, it's not a club that you want to be a part of, right? So you also mentioned another member of the, of the 27 Club was Jim Morrison. Yes. And earlier when I asked you some, some thoughts you might want to have, you mentioned uh, about Morrison's death in Paris. A few years ago, I, I was uh, down in the San Diego area, area, Corona Island, which is where Jim spent some time in his youth because his father was an admiral in the, mm -hmm. in the Navy and, of course, a huge naval base in San Diego. So I met his brother-in-law. Uh, Alan Graham was married to Jim's um, younger sister, younger, I believe. And he told me, of course, you know, the family had lost track of Jim uh, for many years because his father wanted uh, Jim to, you know, join the Navy and, and uh, Jim had skipped mm -hmm. out on his, uh, you know... After he had been drafted, he skipped out on that. He was hanging out in Venice Beach, sleeping on rooftops. His father sent people after Jim. So the family really? had lost track of him. Yeah. Before the doors were basically, they really couldn't find him. That's anymore. right. That's right. So they, um, they had lost track with him. He had sort of disavowed at them. And of course, that famous interview when he was asked about his family, he said, they're dead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so when Alan Graham finally you know, discovered that Jim was part of his family, they went to meet him at the, uh, the airport this in Los Angeles for the first time. Alan Graham, the brother-in-law. Okay, gotcha. And of course, Jim's, it's like stifling hot and Jim's wearing those, uh, those pony pants and the, the, um, the leather jacket and he's got a scarf and he's carrying this old beat up uh, duffel bag or a, an attache case with his lyric, you know, playing the, the part of the beat poet. Right. <laughs> so um, that's how we met Jim Morrison. 
you know, when he had already established himself as a musician, and this was his brother-in-law. So he was telling me this, and uh, so I asked him about, okay, so tell me about the, the, final, the final days. And he said, well, we got a, we got a call from, from Paris saying that Jim's dead. And, and he said my first reaction was, oh, here we go again, because mm-hmm. there had been so many different reports. Rumors and stuff, yeah. But um, Pamela, of course, and his, his wife at the time didn't, didn't tell anybody until days afterwards. And then the moment that uh, Jim was buried, she hightailed it out of there and flew back to the United States. But um, Alan told me about a hanger-on in Paris. He couldn't remember his name exactly, but he got wind of this German fellow by the name of Dieter, who looked like Jim, who dressed like Jim, who hung out at the, the apartment at the, the Paris flat with, with Jim and Pamela. And uh, Jim liked to collect odd people. Mm. He found, you know, he would go into bars and he would hang out with people and they'd become fast friends for a couple of weeks and then he'd move on to someone else. So it seems like Dieter was one of these people. And uh, occasionally he would wear Jim's clothes and go out and get free drinks at the bars. Everyone, oh, you're Jim. Mm. And he'd play it along. So the question then arises when Pamela comes home in a stupor and finds Jim Morrison in the bathtub. Is it possible that that wasn't Jim, that that was this guy Dieter? Hmm. Of course, the other odd thing about the way Jim went in the bathtub was that his head was resting up against the bathtub faucet. Now, I'm, I take showers. I don't know about you, Chris, the last time you got into a bathtub, but who gets into the bathtub with their head I have had a bath in the, the past, tap? and you go the other way. Exactly. Yeah. Your feet are always yeah. facing the, uh, the tap. So that's kind of an odd little incongruity. The idea that he somehow mistook uh, some heroin for a cocaine or something and and, uh, and had a heart attack, got into the bathtub, died, expired there. It just doesn't add up that you, that, that, that you would put your head against the taps. Of course, there's also the theory that he uh, he died at a, at a nightclub, uh, at the Circus Club on the Paris, in, on the left bank in Paris. The uh, It's like Disneyland. Nobody dies in the Circus Club, so... Bouncers took him back, <laughs> back to the hotel, and and put him in the bathtub, uh, so that nobody would know. So it, it is shrouded in mystery. Uh, Alan Graham, though, still holds out a slight, a remote possibility that Jim Morrison faked his death. Hmm. He's not putting it, you know, he's not giving it odds like 50-50 or anything. But he's saying it's remote. If anyone could pull it off, it would have been Jim Morrison. And that it was really Dita. That yes. Was found in the tub. Exactly. Really, you, you mentioned something interesting to me that that I don't know is this an actual thing that does, do if people, someone dies in Disneyland, do they cover it up? That's what I've heard. Really? That's what I've heard. Yeah, they. Will There's a whole other conspiracy. Well, not that they cover it up, but that they will put you in a helicopter and fly you off of the grounds and before you're declared legally dead. Interesting. It's this apparently unspoken rule, or maybe it is written down well, somewhere yeah. that you nobody dies at Disneyland. It's the happiest place on earth. Indeed. You can't die yes, at Disneyland. Exactly. <laughs> wow, man. You know, I love stories like this because, like I said, whether whether it's true, whether it's real, like what a what a uh, food for thought because the Jim Morrison legend was that he faked his death. He's one of the two, him and Elvis and a, a few others. Sure. Andy Kaufman. Yes. You know, yes. and just the thought of someone, I would like to meet somebody who faked their own death and like 30 years later go like, this i can't take it anymore <laughs> like i'd like to know how you were able how you can even pull that off 
Well, uh, Machiavelli uh, did this, apparently, and um, Greek uh, philosopher, um, he was Greek, I believe. Mm -hmm. Sounds like it. Um, or was he Italian? Maybe Italian. Any, yeah, I think it was Italian. Italian, Greek, maybe. That's right. <laughs> so he, you know, great philosopher and um, politician. He, he supposedly pulled this off. And it's interesting, uh, Tupac Shakur right. um, used, the, used the alias Machiavelli on occasion. Mm. And so, again, that lead, feeds into the theory There's that Tupac Shakur uh, perhaps faked his death. So something that Gary and I spoke about uh, as we were ending the, the podcast was he mentioned something about the Big Bopper. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, you've never heard that story before? And we kind of talked about it a little bit, how one of the rumors or theories is that somebody got shot on the Buddy Holly plane, which is why it crashed. Right. And you were going to say, tell me a little bit more in depth about that whole situation. Well, there, there, are, there are a lot of mysteries surrounding the plane crash in, in um, Clear Lake, Iowa. One of them was that there was supposedly a pistol found. And Buddy Holly did carry a, a pistol. It's not unusual. I mean, because he got paid in cash. When they played a club, it was like the Wild West back in those Absolutely. days. Absolutely. Yeah. So it would stand to reason. Now the question was, you know, was there a gunshot fired? Did this cause the plane crash? I don't. I don't happen to think so. However, the other mystery was that when they found the wreckage and Richie Valens and Buddy Holly and, and the Big Bopper, J.P. Richardson's body strewn in the in the field, the Big Bopper was seated in the back. He was a big husky guy. He's seated in the back of that tiny little cramped plane. And yet when they found the bodies, his body was thrown forward. So his son, J.P. Richardson Jr., uh, who toured up until his death, uh, I believe in 2009. Toured as the Big Bopper Jr.? Toured as the Big Bopper, doing mm. a tribute to, the, to his dad. He was born, he never got to meet his father because he was born 80 days after his dad died. Wow, okay. But it had always caused him such anguish to think, did, did my father survive the crash and somehow with his broken and wrecked body crawl to the front, you know, and, and then did he, is that how he died? There were so many unanswered questions. And so in Beaumont, Texas, where the Big, the big Bopper was from, they decided to move his body from the cemetery to a more prominent place in the town to really celebrate and give the Big Bopper his due. And so his son thought, well, here's an opportunity. I'm going to request that my father's remains be exhumed, and I can, I, maybe I can get some answers, answers to some of these questions. You know, maybe was there a gunshot fired? Is there evidence of a gunshot wound? Um, you know, is it possible that my father survived the crash and then, you know, crawled to the front of the, of the wreckage? So they, um, they take out the casket, and the medical examiner calls J.P. Jr. into the room and says, I want you to prepare yourself. We're going to open the casket. It's been almost 50 years. I believe it was 48 years hmm. since... Would that happen in 56 late, or 57? The, um, the crash? That was in 1959, gotcha. February 3rd, and the body was exhumed in 2007. So 48 hmm. years. Prepare yourself. They open the casket. The medical examiner is absolutely stunned at what he sees, and J.P. Richardson Jr. can't believe it either. For some reason, after 48 years, the body is in near pristine condition, right down to the trademark Big Bopper brush cut. He still had his hair? He had his hair. How? It's one of those mysteries. Airtight? 
casket or something? I suppose or? if, you know, if you want a more prosaic answer, it's the, you know, the <laughs> environmental conditions were just so, it reminds me of these saints that are uncorrupted. Yeah. Even after several hundred years. Or like a mummy or something where it's exactly. like this completely mummified body. Yeah. So there's J.P. Richardson staring into his father's face. He's now older than his father was. His father is frozen in time. I believe it was maybe 30 when he passed, maybe a little bit younger. So to this day, the medical examiner, he, he goes on speaking tours and he talks about this remarkable case of the Big Bopper being preserved intact. 100%. That alone is, is fantastic. Like what a thing. But just the postscript was, uh, and here's where the Big Bopper Jr. got some relief. Every bone, virtually every single bone in the Big Bopper's body was just pulverized. Mm. And so he was rest assured there was he was no he was he was killed instantly and there was no chance he survived the crash and of wow. course there were no no gunshot wounds or anything of that sort so so it was just a horrible mechanical problem that went wrong correct but well that part is still up in the air much of the the wreckage the the, the plane wreckage uh which was owned by the um the, the couple now very old um in their 90s i believe uh, they uh, they were the ones that chartered the plane to the to the pilot and uh, Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper. They only have certain pieces of that wreckage, and they say that um, some shadowy figures came by and hauled most of it away. Now I'm not sure if they were from the, you know, from the FBI or from the CIA or where they were from, but uh, they have some of the wreckage, but not all of it. Uh, the other theory is that perhaps the Big Bopper decided to change seats with mm -hmm. uh, Buddy Holly and this big husky guy getting out of the back seat, trying to crawl into the front well, could have caused the pilot, uh, you know, to be distracted and crash the plane. That happens though. Like when you go on smaller planes, as much as I travel, sometimes they'll say, Hey, can two people move from the right side of the plane to the left side of the plane? We need the weight distributed properly. Right. That could be something. Could have been a contributing factor. Especially on such factor. a small plane. Could have been a contributing factor. Yeah. Uh, I know Peggy Sue Guerin a little bit and Peggy Sue, of course, this the, would be the Peggy Sue, the Peggy Sue, High school sweethearts with Buddy Holly, they never married, but mm. I'm pretty sure that, you know, that love really never died, despite the fact that Buddy Holly married uh, later. Uh, and she married uh, Jerry uh, Allison, the drummer, yeah, the original drummer in the Crickets. Because Buddy Holly married a Mexican girl, Spanish lady, right? Uh, Maria, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, right. yeah, so he never married Peggy Sue. No. Okay. Yeah. But that connection remained until mm -hmm. the end. Uh, she, uh, she swears up and down to me that there was some foul play. She believes that she's in communication with Buddy's spirit to this day, and he's intimated that it was it was murder. The motive, I'm not really sure. <laughs> Either mm -hmm. is she at this point, um, but she had premonitions in the weeks and days leading up to the plane crash, and she pleaded with Buddy, "Don't get on the plane. Don't get on the plane." Mm. And uh, he said, "You know, Peggy Sue, it's safer up there than it is driving a car." So she drive. She learned of it uh, driving back to uh, Lubbock, Texas. On her way back to her house, there was a, a a traffic mishap, and all of a sudden, this body comes flying through the air and lands on her windshield. It was if, as if it had fallen from the sky. Hmm. It turns out there was a trucker who had pulled over to the side of the road, got clipped, went sailing up into the air, and landed on the windshield of her car as she's driving back to Lubbock, and. So they had to stop, and the police, of course, came, the ambulance. She gets home February 3rd, goes to bed, wakes up in the morning to discover that Buddy, Buddy Holly had died in a plane crash, just as she had remembered it. She told him, I see the plane going up, 
it comes down. And she talked about, you know, the the um, the farm fields and, and, and all of that stuff. And uh, it happened just as she she had dreaded and dreamt that it would. But this this omen of, of on the way home before learning of Buddy's death, this body seemingly falling out yeah, of the oh sky yeah. and landing on her windshield. It's unbelievable. Yes. You know, the thing I was going to tell you about, Rich, is that it's interesting to me, like you mentioned, um, maybe Big Bop removed on the plane. But, you know, Waylon Jennings was supposed to be on that plane. Yes. I think, did he lose a coin toss to Big Bopper? He he lost the coin toss to Richie Valens. To Richie Valens. Who, uh, poor Waylon Jennings, for the rest of his days, he had to live with this fact that he and Buddy Holly were kind of uh, jabbing each other, verbally jabbing each other, you know, in a playful way. Waylon Jennings was on the, um, the, um, the winter tour. Uh, along with Buddy Holly, he had what, broken up with the Crickets at this point. Was Waylon playing with Buddy, or just uh, on his own? Well, there was uh, he he was um, yeah he was one of the side men. There was okay. Carl Bunch on drums, there was um, Tommy Elsip, and my gosh! So there was no was Crickets that. at that point in time. It was Buddy Holly and another band. That's right. Okay, that's right. Richie Valens, the Big Bopper, of course. They played uh, their their last gig at the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa, and then they were heading to uh, Minnesota. But they had been traveling on this bus through the Midwest in February, mm. and there was no heat on this bus. <laughs> so imagine someone of Buddy Holly's stature. At this point, he had done a world tour. He had toured Australia, but he had problems with the record company and so forth. And, Typical and, story. Right. Yeah. So they're, they're on this horrible bus. And at one point, Carl Bunch, the drummer, has to leave. He gets checked into a hospital. He's got frostbite. I mean, they were lighting fires on the bus with bits of newspaper to keep warm. Yeah. So at a certain point, uh, Waylon Jennings and or, uh, Buddy Holly says, I'm chartering a plane. He says, I got laundry to do before we do the next gig in, in, in uh, Minnesota. I'm going to fly ahead. Who's with me? Big Bopper said, well, I got, I got the flu. I need a good night's sleep. I'm with you. One more seat left. So Waylon Jennings decides to flip for it with Richie Valens. Now Richie Valens wins the coin toss, coin toss, and sorry, coin, coin toss. toss. There you go. The coin, and I'm not even having the vodka. <laughs> I'm much more enunciation now. <laughs> so Richie Valens says, "Wow, this is great. I've never won anything in my life." Wow. Buddy Holly turns to Waylon Jennings and says, "I hope you freeze on that bus tonight." And Waylon Jennings says to Buddy Holly. I hope your bloody plane crashes, you wow. SOP. Wow. So imagine having to live with that. Mm. But the thing with Richie Valance was you would have you would have thought he would have been absolutely dreading the idea of getting on a plane. He because by all accounts he was deathly af afraid of pl of planes. He he um he lost a good friend to a plane crash. At his high school in Los Angeles, he used to serenade the girls with his guitar underneath this tree in the schoolyard. He played there every day at lunch, Monday to Friday. So one day, he happens to be uh, sick or he's off, and what happens? A plane comes falling out of the sky and crashes in that exact spot, killing one of Buddy's classmates, or Richie's classmates. For, for real? For real. Wow. Can you imagine? Yeah. Of all the places, it lands exactly where Richie Valens used to perform wow. at the high school. So, you know, he had he had uh, bad feelings about flying. So anyway, he wins the coin toss, coin toss, <laughs> coin toss, and um, 
it wasn't much of a victory, obviously. You know, you hear about that because I think the same thing happened with uh, Clapton and Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yes. Where Clapton was going to take it and gave it to Stevie or vice versa along those lines. Another good one is, uh, not good one, but uh, Cliff Burton and Kirk Hammett coin tossing to see who gets the top bunk on the bus. They crash. Cliff dies because of the bunk he's in. Just the the cruel hand of fate. How history either way on the flip of yeah, a coin. Yeah, flip of a coin. Mm. You mentioned Buddy Holly. Um, uh, well, we've been talking about Buddy Holly. You said there's a kind of a, a, a curse around Buddy Holly, around the passing of Buddy Holly. Tell me the story. Well, not only did we lose, you know, the three musical giants in in 1959, Richie Valens, the Big Bopper, and Buddy Holly. Uh, Buddy Holly was replaced on that uh, winter dance tour by a guy by the name of Ronnie Smith. Ronnie Smith, a few years later, uh, developed uh, some nasty drug problems, was checked into a mental institution, and uh, hanged himself. Hmm. Now, the Crickets, after Buddy Holly left, they reformed with Joe B. Maudlin and Sonny Curtis and and, um, uh, Jerry Allison. They got a new singer by the name of David Box. They later became the Jitters. They recorded as the Jitters. And it was that incarnation of the crickets that recorded Peggy Sue got married, which was the sequel to Peggy Sue. Buddy Holly didn't sing that song? Not to my knowledge. He didn't record it. He may really? have- Really? Yes, that's I right. I thought it was, that was rec- a Buddy Holly song. It was recorded by David Box. Just and, by and the, the crickets or the That's jitters. right. Or the crickets. Okay. The crickets. Wow. So- That takes a lot of balls to do that. <laughs> those are big shoes to fill. <laughs> they but are, David yeah. Box stepped into them. And mm-hmm. um, so David Box now uh, at a certain point leaves- the, the jitters or the crickets, goes out on his own. Another, a young Texan like Buddy Holly, uh, charters a small plane, and at uh, almost the same age, about 22, uh, dies in a, in a plane crash in 1964. So that's number two. That's crazy. It is, but I mean, it goes on and on. It's like the 27 Club. Now we have Eddie Cochran. Eddie Cochran was a huge Buddy Holly fan, mm-hmm. and they were good friends. Summertime blues. That's right. Mm-hmm. So Eddie Cochran is touring England along with Gene Vincent. Uh, They get into a car crash. Gene Vincent re-injures a knee that he had injured years before. He would walk the rest of his days with a a bad limp. He died in 1971. Eddie Cochran is thrown from the vehicle, uh, taken to a hospital, uh, has massive head injuries. He's actually visited in hospital by the surviving crickets, Joby Maudlin, Sonny Curtis, uh, Jerry Allison, uh, he, he dies the next day. Then we have Joe Meek. Now, Joe Meek, I don't think, gets his due. He was one of the most avant-garde, experimental record producers who really elevated the, the position of record producer to an artist in and of, his, of himself. He was the guy that really uh, created overdubbing and reverb. And hmm. a, a band that he uh, produced, The Tornadoes, uh, recorded a, a hit song called Telstar, yeah, yeah, yeah. which became the first British hit to, to hit number one on the uh, Hot 100. In Instrumental, the right? That's right. Yeah. So in in a way, and that started the ball rolling. So in a way, you could say that Joe Meek was sort of responsible for getting the British invasion hmm. rolling. And also like surf music and all that that's stuff right. where it was just instrumental, that's, Ventures and that's right. yeah. Dick Dale and all that sort of thing. Yeah, wow. the Tornadoes. Yeah. And Joe Meek is, I mean... There's an episode just on Joe Meek. He was totally into the paranormal. He used to set up recording devices in cemeteries to try and capture EVPs or electronic voice phenomenon. He would record his cats. He believed that they were, you know, trying to communicate with him. 
huge interest in the paranormal. At some point in 1958, Joe Meek goes to a tarot card reader and is, is somehow the conversation comes up about Buddy Holly. And the tarot card reader tells Joe Meek that Buddy Holly is going to die in a plane crash on February the 3rd, 1958. So Joe Meek is desperately trying to warn Buddy Holly. Well, February 3rd, 1958 comes and goes. Of course, nothing happens because it was a year later. She was off by a year. February 3rd, 1959. She, she, Joe Meek is a, is a lady? No, Joe Meek oh, went the, to a tarot Sorry, the tarot card leader. Oh, That's okay. right. Wow. So, jeez, oh, man. Joe Meek continues with his recording career, but he was absolutely obsessed with, with, with Buddy Holly. And at a certain point, we're not sure why, but Joe Meek just falls into a deep depression and a funk and almost has these psychotic episodes. February 3rd, the anniversary of Buddy Holly's death, Joe Meek takes a shotgun, murders his landlady, and then turns the gun on himself on the anniversary of Buddy Holly's death. What year? 1967. Okay, so the 8-year anniversary. So there's there's Joe Meek. Uh, boy, oh boy. I mean, it goes on. You could talk about Keith Moon, for example. Keith Moon uh, died in uh, in Mayfair, a suburb of London, in, in uh, September of 1978. Uh, the night before, he had been out with Paul and Linda McCartney attending the Buddy Holly story in London's uh, West End. And, uh, of course, on a sort of a sidebar, Jeez. Keith Moon died in Harry Nilsson's uh, flat in Mayfair in the same room, in the same bed that Mama Cass had died in, in 1974. Now, if you're Harry Nilsson, you're thinking, my God, am I, am I uh, a jinx or what? Yeah, or why am I sleeping in a bed where the lady choked on a sandwich? That's right. So two, two um, musical uh, legends died in Harry in the Nilsson's. Same, Harry Nilsson's bed. That's right. That's right. That's, that's crazy. So Harry so, sold the, uh, the, the apartment. Who buys it? Pete Townsend. Keith Moon's bandmate, who obviously has no, you know, problems with ghosts or anything like that. <laughs> it, it's just like the same thing, like when Dwayne Allman dies in a, in a motorcycle crash. Yes. I don't know the exact thing. I'm sure other people did on the corner of 3rd and 5th. Right. A year later, I believe to the day, Barry... Oh, um, not go Oakley, I'm going to say Barry Gordy, the, the, the bass player. Of right, the right. There was, yeah, uh, there's Dickie Betts and uh, uh, was it Oak? Maybe Barry, Barry Oakley, maybe. Barry Oakley. He dies. Yes. A year later... Yes. In a motorcycle crash on the corner of 3rd and 5th. That's right. The, exact, the same location. It's unbelievable. Well, just back up a little bit because um, a year, almost exactly a year before Dwayne Allman died in that uh, uh, motorcycle, motorcycle accident, accident, he had a drug overdose. Mm -hmm. He's rushed to the hospital. The band members are frantic. They gather at the hospital. The doctor comes out and says, I don't think he's going to pull through. This is not good. He's not responding. So... Again, I, um, I I believe it was was Barry Barry Oakley. Barry Oakley. I'm pretty sure I'll Google it, but he rushes out of the hospital, falls to his knees in the parking lot, and starts sobbing. And supposedly, this is the story, cries out to to God and says, "Please, just give Dwayne one more year." Wow! And that's what he got, one more year. And it is Barry Oakley, by the way. Unbelievable stuff. I mean, we mentioned Brian Jones earlier. Did you ever anything controversial about his 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 passing? Well, it's kind of a rumors and innuendo about that. Yeah, Brian Jones died in his swimming pool at his estate in uh, East Sussex, England. Which, kind of an interesting side note, that um, that mansion was part of the old A. A. Milne estate. A. A. Milne wrote Winnie the Pooh, 
based on a character from Winnipeg. That's right. There's a connection for <laughs> Winnipeg you, Chris. Winnipeg the Pooh, yeah. That's right. <laughs> so it had always been assumed that he had just drowned. Mm-hmm. Perhaps a little bit of a, you know, alcohol and drug cocktail precipitated things. Although the people that attended this pool party were very hush-hush. Mm-hmm. Nobody wanted to talk about what happened to Brian Jones back in, I think it was July of 1969. What's interesting was a couple of weeks prior. Now, he had been asked to be, he, he was asked to leave the Rolling Stones. I think technically he's actually out of the Stones. At That's right, he time, is. Yeah. Uh, he appeared spir- uh, so, somewhat sporadically on Beggars and Banquets mm-hmm. uh, in, in 1968, or Beggars Banquet, Beggar's sorry, Banquet, yeah. Beggars Banquet 1968. But by this point, his drug problems uh, had just overtaken his musical right. abilities. So he was asked to leave, he did. Um, but several weeks prior, uh, Mick Jagger and Marion Faithful. Uh, who were both into, you know, Eastern mysticism and perhaps the occult, uh, are playing around with the I Ching coins. And what exactly are I Ching these coins? These are, I suppose they're they're almost like one might say um, a way of predicting future events, somewhat like a tarot card, but this comes from from China. So the I Ching coins are supposed to reveal future events. Mm-hmm. So what comes up is Brian, death by water. They can't believe it. They try it again. It comes up again. Brian, death by water. Several weeks later, Brian Jones found a dead in his swimming pool. Now, Mick and Marianne feel horrible because they never said anything, but they they thought, this is ridiculous. You know, it's not going to happen. Marianne Faithful is so overcome with guilt and grief that she actually changes her physical appearance. She gets her hair cut in the Brian Jones style. I don't know if you remember that. Bowl cut. Yes, the straight bangs. Yeah. Exactly. And she starts having these episodes where, you know, Brian is haunting her dreams, and she claims when she looks in the mirror, she sees Brian Jones looking back at her. She used to date Brian Jones at some point before Mick did. Is that correct? Um, I know that uh, Anita Pallenberg... um, Okay, yeah, she okay, dated both was. Keith and, and Brian. Okay. And Brian, but it's possible. I'm sure they're all messing around with everybody. At that <laughs> in point. those days, sure. So she sees them in the mirror. That's right. That's right. Another interesting connection is is Patty Smith, great New York artist, musician, and uh, I mean another another era. But um, she, she has a strange connection with Brian Jones. She went to a Rolling Stone concert uh, back in the mid '60s or early, uh, maybe late '60s. She got up close to the stage. He almost got crushed. Um, at one point, Brian Jones sees what's happening down below, is fearful someone's going to get hurt. He reaches out to her. She touches him. And ever since then, occasionally this will come up in an interview. She'll talk about you know, how Brian Jones is guiding her career and has appeared to her in dreams and so forth. So yeah, Brian Jones has had kind of a strange spiritual connection with a number of artists from beyond the grave. You know what's funny, too? I think Dylan was actually at the last show that Buddy Holly played in Clear Lake. That's right. Because he talks about Buddy Holly looked at him That's and right. has been his muse or has been guiding his career or yes. something along those lines, right? Yes. Yeah, Great yeah. story. That's right. So just as we wind down, there's a couple of other kind of odds and ends I wanted to talk about because something that Gary mentioned was talking about the, the relationship of the occult, and specifically Aleister Crowley mm. and Jimmy Page. Or anybody in rock and roll, but I think it was more Page than anybody. Yes. Well, Aleister Crowley, interesting <laughs> interesting guy. Um, 
was really a member of the the aristocracy in in England. His his father was an engineer, but his his um, his ancestors had owned a brewery, so he never had to work. And so he he liked to dabble in in magic, and and he liked he had a um, a penchant for prostitutes and and um, alcohol and so forth. And he almost. I guess in a way to rebel against against his parents who were very religious. They used to read Bible uh, passages to him at the breakfast table. Um, he would go out on a you know on these all night binges and rampages, and and eventually found himself dabbling in in witchcraft and the occult, and some would say Satanism and so forth. And um, wrote volumes about uh, you know magic and occult and black magic and so forth in the occult and jimmy jimmy page uh, of led zeppelin was absolutely enthralled with this uh, in fact was um, he the head of the satanic church at this point alistair, alistair crowley? crowley or am i thinking of the, anton lavey yeah anton lavey okay, so alistair crowley was he was like certainly a, a precursor to he's more like a that. wizard and a black that's right yeah. Yeah, and he died in the, uh, the, the late 1930s gotcha. so it was before there was sort of a formal satanic church but he had uh, purchased um, a mansion in Scotland. On the banks of? Oh, Loch Ness, of course. Thank you. <laughs> Another mythical place. Yes. Yeah. And um, eventually sold it. But um, uh, Jimmy Page wanted to have some connection to Aleister Crowley, however tenuous. So he decided he was going to buy this this house. And there are stories, not from Jimmy Page, because I, I don't think he spent a lot of time there with touring and so forth. But... The people that worked there, the staff, all have stories. Uh, there was supposedly a beheading in this. It's like a medieval castle. Castle, yeah. And uh, there was supposedly a beheading, and and uh, the, the staff maids and so forth report at night hearing a, what sounds like a head rolling. I don't know what a head sounds like rolling down the <laughs> hall, but that's what they report. Jimmy Page has always been sort of tight-lipped about you know what's gone on there. He... He said he never saw or heard the head rolling down the hall, but he intimated that he's had experiences there, paranormal experiences there, ghost sightings, but he's never really elaborated on those. Uh, he eventually sold the castle as well in Scotland. Now, in, um, I believe it was Led Zeppelin three, the very famous quote from Aleister Crowley, and I believe he, it was a, a book title, his biography is, uh, Do Thou, Do Thou What Thou Will. Uh, which is kind of a credo, I guess, <laughs> you know, among witches and, and, mm -hmm. and Satanists and so forth. Do what you want. Exactly. Yeah. And um, Jimmy Jimmy Page had that uh, inscribed on on um, on Led Zeppelin three. Mm. So, yeah, Jimmy Page has a strong connection to Aleister Crowley, and the whole sort of occult connection to rock and roll. A uh, part of it is just showmanship. I think that's dark side. Certainly, I think, for example, with Black Sabbath. Uh, they used to, you know, they. I don't think they were serious occult practitioners necessarily. Many bands sort of played around with that. It was, it was feeding into the image that you know rock and roll is taboo and it's not your your grandparents' music and so forth. But with Jimmy Jimmy Page, I mean, he was a serious, I think, devotee of Aleister Crowley. Mm -hmm. Well, like I said, if you're going to buy somebody's house and there's rolling heads down the hallway, it's a little bit creepy for sure. Uh, last couple questions. Um, first of all, what's your, who's your favorite band? It's It's got to be the Beatles. Yeah. Um, and for me, when I first heard Revolver on stereo, specifically And Your Bird Can Sing, I thought, and this was in the early 80s, I thought, what planet? Mm-hmm. I mean, that album is 50 years old now, mm -hmm. as of last year. 
and it's still like miles ahead of like the harmonies and the bass line. Everything. And I just thought, my gosh, George Martin, I know certainly had a hand in it, but you look at the evolution of this band in like four years, mm -hmm. two years they land in, in, um, in, in the United States and in two years they go from singing, she loves me, yeah, 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 to this, mm -hmm. that's impossible. Mm -hmm. And in 1966, there were bands still doing the yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were just so- So far ahead of like another from another planet. And to me, that has just always fascinated me. I was looking at this way with the Beatles, you know, basically 62 to 69 is their recording career. So you're dealing with a band that when they break up in 69, yes. two of them are 29, one of them is 27, one of them is 26. George is 26 when the Beatles break up. Like talk about like, That's where right. do you go from here? That's right. You know what Hard I mean? Unbelievable. That that age of, of, of musicians with the musical maturity they had at 40, 50 years older. Yes. You know, it, it blows my mind as it, well. It is remarkable. And what's your favorite memory about Gary? I think just hanging out with him over beer and whatever. I used to take him to Greek town when he would come to Toronto. And so we'd hang out on the Danforth and eat some moussaka and have some beer or some red wine and just talk like you and I are talking. Mm. And uh, just, you know, he was such a, a font of information and and um, knew so many musicians. He would talk to me about Robbie Krieger from The Doors mm -hmm. and and he knew the drummer that toured with Ed, Eric Clapton and and trips he made down to the crossroads and just, just a really cool guy to hang out with. And, um, I don't have one single memory. It's just basically sharing the same mm -hmm. air with him, mm -hmm. in the same space. You guys are kindred spirits. We were, we mm -hmm. were. Yeah. Are you going to keep his his, uh, his dream alive, his vision alive? That's my mission. Great, Rich, it's been great talking to you, man. Chris, thanks for the I'm opportunity. I'm pretty creeped out right now. <laughs> I'm not getting on any small planes. Please don't. <laughs> All right, the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone with Richard Searitt releases new episodes every Wednesday on the Jericho Network and Westwood One. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or Google Play or listen on TuneIn. Rich has already got another in-depth episode about the death of Jimi Hendrix. He just released a full episode with more detail on Buddy Holly so you can hear the, soul, the whole story with the day the music died. If you love mysteries and conspiracy theories and rock and roll, then this is the show for you. Subscribe now. The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone right here on the Jericho Network and Apple Podcasts on Westwood One. Uh, all right. Also, Chris Jericho, Rock and Restoration Sea sets sail October 27th. Still some cabins left at ChrisJerichoCruise.com. But after a big announcement of Kenny Omega, uh, so many other announcements coming. We actually have four major talents coming up. And don't forget about the Ring of Honor, Sea of Honor tournament. For as low as 150 bucks. you can uh, put your deposit down in your cabin. And once you book, everything is included in the price. You get to see Kenny Omega wrestle in the ring. You get to hang out with Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler. SoCal Val, Mick Foley, Rick and the Dragon Steamboat, Rey Mysterio, uh, Raven, Cyrus, and Paul Lazenby from Killing the Town, Conan, Disco Inferno, Shane Helms from Keeping It 100, Beyond the Darkness, telling some scary tales, Cole Cabana, Marty DeRosa doing the Unprofessional Wrestling Show, Brad Williams, Ron Funches, Busted Open Radio, Fozzie, Phil Campbell, The Bastard Sons, King, uh, the, the, the Stir, The Dave Spivak Project, The Cherry Bomb, Shoot to Thrill, Blizzard of Ozzy, so much stuff, and the Pièce de Résistance, the Ring of Honor, Sea of Honor Tournament, which gets you a world title shot uh, for the Ring of Honor Championship in the future if you win it. Young Bucks will be in it. Uh, Marty Skrull, Briscoe Brothers, Dalton Castle, uh, Frankie Kazarian, Adam Page, Crystal Daniels, Jay Lethal, American Nightmare, Cody Rhodes, Brandy Rhodes, Kenny Omega will be there. So many are going to be there. Go to ChrisJerichoCruise.com to find out all the information. Come join us. This cruise will sell out. Don't you dare miss it. Come and hang out. And don't forget to watch the Painless video on YouTube now. The Making of Painless also up on YouTube now. 
so much great stuff going on. We're so happy to have you here. Uh, thank you so much for being here. And uh, we will see you next Wednesday. And in the meantime, and in the between time, stay hard, stay hungry, and biggie. Yeah, boy. We'll see you next Wednesday, baby.